Harvest Good Internet. It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I am very happy to welcome you to episode number 26 of Radio Harvester. Uh, formerly my pizza podcast, currently my talking shit with my friends podcast. I, uh, I don't have a new catchphrase yet. I'll get one, I promise. Um, but not anytime soon. I got other stuff going on. Uh, I started a newsletter. Uh, you can sign up for it. I'll put a little link in the description of the episode or, you know, it's around. Um, where I just, once a month, I'm going to send you an email where I talk about some music and books that I've been reading and listening to and uh, maybe provide a recipe because I'm trying to cook again. This is all about my personal betterment, but I realized that I need an audience to do anything because I'm a monster, and so I'm making a newsletter about my personal betterment. If that does not sound good to you, don't fucking subscribe. Fuck you, I don't care. Um, This month's guest is uh, a friend of mine. It's a really good friend of mine. It's one of my best friends. Um, Caroline Paquita of too many bands to mention, uh, although most of them come up in the interview. We, um, she also runs a publishing house called Pegacorn Press, uh, which does like uh, queer and counterculture publishing, uh, comics, zines. She published a play, you know, all types of shit. Um, and uh, it's amazing, and she's amazing, and she's been one of my best friends and one of the most important people in my life for like over a decade now. And so it's really cool that I got to sit down and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. I know that I enjoyed having it. All right. Thanks. Bye. So let's talk about, however briefly we want to, like what, how did you get into punk, right? You're from Miami. I'm from Miami. I grew up there and I would say like, uh, you know, first real mainstream punk I got into, you know, would probably be Nirvana. I was trying to think about this, like Mm -hmm. what was the pathway into it? How old were you? Um... What was that was? Kurt Cobain died when I was in fifth grade. I remember. Yeah, I remember pulling a prank on my friend, or no, I called her, and since I was always ma- pulling pranks on people, she thought I was joking when I said that he died. Um, I think that was sixth grade. At some point, I had from uh, Columbia House Records getting CDs in the mail. You know, I had Never a nice paying. mix of like all this weird stuff of everything from like you know you're younger you're in elementary school and you listen to like Jimi hendrix in the doors or something and you yeah. think that you're really like you're like i'm really tapping into something and then you know you're like what's this nirvana you know that's like somehow you're you know to me potentially as an elementary school student you're like Jimi Hendrix and the Doors, they're definitely weirdos. You know, Janis Joplin, and you're like, oh, these people died from drugs, and you're, like, still into it. <laughs> you yeah, know I, I mean? feel like there's some, like... And maybe this is just uh, anachronistic to... And that's, maybe that's not the right word, but personal to my experience, but there's some, like... Like, maybe, like, Muppet Show connection with the Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and some of that hippie stuff where you're, like, if you're weird and a kid and you're kind of into this, like, older... Mm-hmm. children's entertainment that was informed by hippies and it seems like sometimes the first step into like weird shit is just maybe like and i had you know past. my older sister who's about 
five and a half years older than me. And she, you know, she liked like the sugar cubes and our aunts always worked for you two for, you know, since they were like super small band, like she worked for, um, oh my God, uh, what is that huge label? I'll think about it in a second. But uh, Island she, Records or something like that. Yeah, for she Arista. did. She did work for all these different record labels throughout right. the years, and like represented the Ramones for a bit and all this stuff. So I always heard about things. We always had records. We always went to U two concerts for free. Cool. So there was like this thing of going to concerts and shows, and then at some point, you know, you start doing some drugs as a teenager. Yeah. Um, started going to punk shows or like teenager, young teenager kind of like band shows. And I was like, this is kind of lame. Yeah. These people are riffing off Nirvana, but it's not as good. And then um, there was this record store in South Miami and my best friend and I went down there. I don't even know how we went down there, got there, but uh, it was around the time that... Um, that those generator shows were going on in the Everglades. And we went to the, some of those with our friends who had cars, who were like into punk. And it was yeah. all like kind of like pop punk, which to this day I still, it's not like my go-to. But not, I mean like you think pop. Like Screeching Weasel kind of stuff. Oh, it was like Screeching Weasel. Yeah, kind of and stuff. I okay. never was a fan, but like I know on one of the occasions that we got a ride down there, we stopped at this record store in South Miami that the name is escaping me. And we, my friend and I were like, okay, you buy this one record CD and I'll buy the other one and then we'll tape them for each other. And we're like, okay, we got, one of us got Descendants, the other one got Gorilla Biscuits. Okay, (laughs) great. Yeah, and I was like, okay, okay. And there's also this program on the public radio down there. This guy, Bob Slade, he had this punk show from like 11 o'clock at night on Sunday night until like four in the morning. Yeah. Every week. And I, he would like send you flyers in the mail. And if you passed out the flyers, he'd get you on to the guest list for free. And it's like he, he was like a promoter as well. Yeah, as, okay. but he was like also super sketchy. Like yeah, you know people. Clearly. Yeah, and so I started like going to more shows, punk, you know, punk shows, and everybody's yeah. those, etc. Like saw the Ramones, uh, saw all sorts of shit, you know, whatever. And I, there was this one band from Miami called Load that I really liked a lot because I was just like, oh wow, these fucking crazy fucked up like Southern punks. Are they really heavy? Uh, they're like super of- drunk, super drunk, and I don't even know if it was like what it sounded like. Yeah, I think I still have the record. It was probably one of the few records I have from that era. Sure. It's like my, I think that was the first like technically local punk, like twelve inch that I bought. Okay. Um, cool. I didn't know. It's funny because I met. So I found like a slug and lettuce on the city of Miami bus on the way to high school. <laughs> yeah. That's such a dream. Like No, I know. And I was like and I actually found that before all that other stuff or around the beginnings of that. And I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, and it's like, you know, all these like hardcore bands that all is like ask this, ask that, whatever, you yeah, know, like yeah, there'd be sure. some like I don't even remember what record label, but you know, they every band's like ass, whatever. And then there would be reviews of, like, 
Doris or, you know, if people yeah. I knew or Dishwasher Pete or things like that later on, like I ended up knowing these folks. And so I started learning that language of like, oh, zines and this and that. And I remember in like 10th grade, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to learn how to play bass and write a zine, et cetera, because I found like this journal entry. I had to like keep a journal for school. And it was uh-huh. like, what are your goals for the year? You know, it was like build a dark room in the back hall, learn how to play bass, start a zine. That's so funny because my next question was going to be, did you make zines or play in bands first? Like, which one did you do? Uh, I made you do zines. Okay. I made zines. Like, I Was got, it pretty neck and neck, though? Um, Kind of. I got a bass in middle school, and then I would, like, have these, like, kind of turdy, like, the, like, guys that were, I grew up around, like, in our neighborhood, where you know they would be like yeah i'll show you some bass and then like play like some kind of primus slap bass thing and i'd be like no like Uh fuck this like for a while my mom bought bass lessons Uh for me from like this guy that we rented the like we had a guest house behind our house and this super weird dude and i was like I can't I can't learn bass from this guy. Like was he, was, he just trying to teach you like Jaco Pastorius, like I don't even know. Like I as I was zoning it out. I was yeah. like, this is not what I want to do. You know, listening to like Hole and, you know it's things like that and you're like, This this doesn't sound like this, you know? Um and you know, a lot of it's kinda of murky because A, like I haven't thought about it for a long time. B, you know, I should premise this with the you know I got the concussion a couple years ago so in some ways it's like tapping back into like ancient memory and patching it together so sometimes I'm like I'll remember the name Slug and Lettuce and then sometimes I don't I'm like oh you know I know that moment but I couldn't you know so apologies for some of that but um yeah I did I remember having like a yearbook class in 11th grade and I, like, instead of doing that, just made a zine. And that's also when I was, like, started dating. For, do I even say their names? I don't know. I don't know. Depends on you how know you who I'm talking talk about. about yeah. yeah. I, I started dating a, like, 20, even though I was in 11th grade and had braces, I started dating, like, a 21-year-old punk. Uh-huh. Um, and they were very linked in to... This was 97 or 98, roughly. And that is how I met all the folks in Chattanooga. Like, one time for spring break, like, I think it was 12th grade, I took the Greyhound to Chattanooga Mm -hmm. as a high schooler. Sure. (laughs) All the way from Miami. Like, I don't know. We There's just this whole crew of, like, punks in Miami. Yeah. That probably about 16 on, I hung out with these folks. And that right. was like the f- punks from Michigan and from Chattanooga that ended up in Miami, and then everybody ended up back in Chattanooga. Chattanooga right. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I fell into all of it. Right. And that first scene was that Brazen Hussy already? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, I, and I definitely, so I was making zines before I started playing bands. Yeah. And when I lived in Chattanooga, I like played. Tried to play music with folks. Did you move from Miami to Chattanooga? Yeah, like two days. After high school? Two days after graduating high school. I was like, bye. Did you have any plans to go to college or anything? Or I had gotten like- accepted into University of Florida. I got accepted into SVA here mm-hmm. 
and then at University of Florida for spring semester. And I was like, I just am going to take a break. I don't know. Yeah. And I went to Chattanooga and, you know, had a house where my rent was $50 a month. And, right. you know, doing like plasma to yeah, pay your rent. Yeah, you plasma once and a month. A couple times because you have to buy your your forties, you know, and you have to right. pay for gas and stuff. But um, doing day labor and donating plasma and doing a zine and living and I mean this is be- way before Chattanooga became like so cool or whatever. I think I was one of like four punk ladies that lived there. Yeah, it was very different than what it is now. I mean, it was in '98. Right, yeah, I, I think I met people from Chattanooga, like, in, what year was the, oh, 2004, the RNC. Yeah. I, ha- I have a, I have an old friend from Chattanooga who's, like, who I met on September 12th, 2001, mm-hmm. who was, like, an Earth First mm-hmm. uh, person, and I remember him, like, that, the years between knowing him in New York, because he was living in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, and then, like, going around making trouble with him, and then meeting... Like the, uh, like Billy and Daniel and all of them yeah. who came up for the RNC, he would always talk to me about like, yeah, Chat. I never went to Chattanooga with him, and he'd yeah. be like, yeah, there's these punks in Chattanooga, and they're like this, and I was like, I was like a piece of shit, like just a little jerk, and uh-huh. I was kind of just like, there's not punks where you're from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean the punks where you're from wear a flannel? No, punks wear a leather jacket. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, like, it yeah. was like, that those was aren't the, punks. Those yeah, are a New York thing. kids would always come to Gainesville and act like that. Like, when is this? And, yeah. Cause I'm you a, know, oh, you can't buy any, like a 40 in Florida. I'm like, yeah, no, you can't. Also, it gets really gross really quick. It's really hot here. It's too hot so for So you a want a 32 or something smaller. I, you know, I never thought about that. Because also, they don't sell 40s in Texas. Yeah. I never thought about the heat being a reason to not sell. I mean, that's what I always assumed. That makes so you much sense. You can have guns and all this crazy shit, so why can't you have a large beard? Because yeah. it gets gross. <laughs> you know it what I mean? so gross. <laughs> like, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? Who wants a 40-ounce beer like on a 100-degree Like a 16-ounce can is really great. Yeah. You know? A 22 is, like, good as well. But, like, yeah, a 40... Yeah, even is getting... Yeah, I mean... We're getting... It's touch and go at the end. Right. There's less three inches of beer and nasty. Exactly. Fuck! Wow, yeah. that's a revelation. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, so I I was in Chattanooga and not for long. I was there like six months, and my mom kind of gave me an ultimatum of like, if you don't go to school now, like they had played into the state program since I was in second grade for the state school. Okay. And then she was like, if you don't go now, we're gonna give that to your little sister who was 10 years younger than me. And I was like, oh, this mom means business. Yeah. And like, you know, I had known they'd been paying this thing forever. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. Plus already I could tell, you know, at the time I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? Keep on donating plasma, like work at pickle barrel, you know, have my arms yeah. stink like pickles forever. Like I can't do this. And it would just be bratty to not, go to school yeah, you know for sure. like oh, fuck you mom and dad you know it's like you know I'm gonna take this opportunity so I moved to Gainesville and I had already been there a bunch of times and I when we'd go we'd stay with like Chris uh and CC Chris from Hot Water Music because CC had been his girlfriend had been part of like Chattanooga scene yeah 
And that's when I met uh, like Chuck from Howler Music and his wife Sam, right. who I later on was in Bitchin' with. Right. Were you in any bands before Bitchin'? Uh, like there, we. I, it was like a pre precursor to Forced Vengeance. Oh no shit! Yeah, that Forced Vengeance seven inch is one of my favorite. Yeah. Records from the like that era of Chattanooga. Yeah. Creative output or whatever. Yeah. So it was. Bef- like, because Eric, Amy, maybe it was Greg. I can't remember now. There's so sure. much crossover too. At this yeah, point. there's a lot of the same people. Um, yeah, but yeah, we played music, and then yeah, but it wasn't. You know, we were. I think Amy and I were just singing together, and I was like, I'm not. Uh, I don't not I'm not a singer. Yeah. yeah, but um, so my boyfriend at the time was like, well, you know. Sam, like, she's a badass because she had been in Van Builder Ass and was, like, oh, just no a shit. well-known, yeah. like, uh, rocker babe. He's like, just go over to her house, ask her if you want to be in a band. So I literally did just walk over, knock on her door, and, like, do you want to start a band? And she was like... Were you, like, 18 or 19? Uh, yeah, I think I, at that point, was 19. That's a thing I can, like, imagine doing then, but I can't imagine doing as a 36-year-old. Oh, no, I'm still into it. I, no, I love it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, but I just, like, I have so many more layers of anxiety and, like, uh, like I was just much more confident in some ways. In other ways, I was not. But, like, that kind of young confidence where I'm like, yeah, I'll just go knock on a stranger's door and ask them to start a Yeah, I mean, I didn't have her phone number, you know, so <laughs> yeah. I just walked over. Yeah. Knocked on the door. She was like, okay, sure. And I, like, kind of didn't really know how to play bass. And she she definitely knew how to play guitar. Yeah. And um, at first the band had this woman, Kobe, as the second guitarist. And Todd, we found Todd, and that was great. Mm-hmm. And we did, I think we did, the, well, we, we definitely put out a tape. I don't think Kobe was on the 7-inch I can't remember. I'd have to look at it now. Did you put out one or two seven inches in that? Two, two right? Three. Three. Okay. Three. No idea. Put out one of them. Well, they were like co-released by this German mm-hmm. label, and no idea. But I think no idea ended up like just doing the whole thing. Yeah, that's. And then oh, two on no idea because then we did a split with Onion Flavor Rings. Right. And an LP that was also through no idea, but um. Yeah, so we were originally a four-piece, but then it turned to a three-piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then it was just living that Gainesville, you know, punk, playing shows, sneaking in the pool yeah. after hours, going to school, studying photography. I'd always done photography, still doing zines. All my professors encouraged me to keep on doing zines. Like, mm-hmm. all my papers were turned in in zine format. No shit. Yeah. Um, which is super funny because one of my professors at the gallery I was just working with, like his wall text, the wall text was like from him. And I'm like, he's very like bougie art form world. Yeah. And then also like, you know, wrote a blurb for me for my box set. Like he gets it, you know, yeah, he's all over. For sure. Um, but, uh, you know, lived in Gainesville was, would hitchhike kind of, you know, I would say more of like a house punk style because there's definitely like some, uh, this is like pre-Oogle era, you know, like there's just like weird scrappy kids hopping trains and stuff. Yeah. Um, 
And I was kind of, there was all these kids from Fargo and Minneapolis that came through, and that's kind of when I think more like railroad culture style yeah, started sure. infiltrating. Because like folks in Chattanooga wouldn't really hitchhike or do that. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's just a different, it was like a different style of punk. Right. And so my friend Casey and I were like going to go on this big road trip and ho- try to hop trains. You know, I got a crew change guide. You know, this is like pre-cell phone where you're just like, yeah. I got my maps, you know, like we don't know what's going to happen. And we started out by going to the Bowling Green Zine Conference. And then, I don't remember when that happened. Well, we went to, I went to a bunch of them. So they were for years. I was years. Still in high school when those were going on. I graduated in 2001. And... Uh, and I remember being like, I want to go to the Bowling Green yeah. Conference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would have to say that there's that Minneapolis influence. And then there was the Minneapolis to New Orleans kind of cross section. And then New Orleans to Gainesville. Like I started going to New Orleans like all the time when Noe Miasto was where everybody lived. Yeah. Because, you know, just bitching would play shows kind of all around basically the south just like along the gulf essentially uh sometimes well going to new orleans a bit and then also like up to chattanooga Mm -hmm. and Asheville. yeah uh did i think was that 2001 i can't uh maybe it was 2002 i don't know came up to new york played at cbgb's that was super weird yeah it was on wfmu you know it was like we were touring quite a bit did like a five-week U.S. tour uh, out to San Francisco and up around, you know. Was that the first time you went out to the Bay? Um, no. It was when I was hopping trains across the U.S. with Casey. Uh-huh. Totally got college credit for it, which is hilarious. You got college credit for riding trains? Yeah. my One of my professors heard me talking <laughs> about it, and he was like... <laughs> He was like this uh, Brazilian dude who's super awesome, and he's like, you know, next next semester you need an independent study credit. Like, why don't you just document this trip? And I was like, dude, I already bought fifty rolls of film. Like, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And so because of that, then when her own Faroki came to the U.S. and was doing it, like, was a visiting professor at University of Florida. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's mm-hmm. a German filmmaker. He's since passed. Um, super amazing filmmaker. Like, all these, my kind of, like, entourage of professors that were super just, like, being like, be a freak, you know? Like, you live in this weird town. Obviously, you're not, like, your average college student, like, yeah, you're going to have trains, document it. You want to make zines? Sure, write like a zine about Raymond Pettibone and Nicole Eisenman and punk influence. Right, okay. Um, you know, which then is funny because I sent that to Nicole Eisenman recently. <laughs> 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 like I'm working with her at a new museum, like helping install the show. I'm like, oh, I wrote a really dorky zine about you. Yeah, you know, yeah. can I send this to you along with this like package of stuff, you know? Um, but like... These folks really, if it weren't for them, I would have, like, not been in school. You know? You think you would have just quit? Um, They really, like, supported me in a way that, like, other educational forms hadn't. You know, like, being in high school and I was like, whatever. Even though I was, like, in a photo magnet program, the guy, like, didn't like me and didn't like my punk photography. 
Right. You know, it was like, why can't you just shoot like deco Miami architecture? I'm like, because that's fucking dumb. Yeah, you know, like, because it's been done before, you know, and that's not my life. Like, um, so they really kind of kept me interested. And, you know, there's Wayward Council and that whole scene. And I was very involved with Wayward Council and the ARC. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, at the time I was like, I can't wait to leave this place. But looking back, like, as obviously all these things were very formative. And I had, like, and not, like, I had so many different influences of, like, weirdo art, you know, kind of like Dan Beckman, Don Godwin, like, impractical cockpit weirdo traveling arty uh-huh. bands to like the southern punk chattanooga wild scene to like the gainesville kind of you know you have like the drunk punk like you know billy reese peters or whatever sure. to you know just like this whole different mix yeah and you're synthesizing all these different influences yeah and like pulling things that i like from them or don't you know or definitely knowing what i don't like yeah for sure yeah and uh yeah and so I don't know I mean I feel very fortunate in a lot of ways of like what I was exposed to and having those professors not to like be like oh these professors because at the time I was like yeah whatever no that's cool though because the like the narrative in punk or whatever is oftentimes and like often with a lot of people I talk to for this show is like this I wasn't getting the things I needed out of these institutional Mm -hmm. avenues so I sought them out elsewhere and to hear that like you were finding the things that you needed creatively and, and emotionally and whatever and socially elsewhere, but also you had these professors in a college specifically who were like nurturing that and encouraging you. It's yeah. really cool. And also, and it wasn't like a specialized art school. It was right. like a state university, you know? And and even then, like George Ferrandi, who I end up having a space at her uh, studio program here, like as a 20-year-old, she sent me mail that's how I met my professors, actually. Uh, Barbara Jo Ravel, who became my mentor, she heard about me and sent a letter to my P.O. box because she got, saw one of my zines and asked me to start taking classes with her. I forgot about that. And then that's... That's fucking amazing. And then she introduced me to Al Barrow, the guy that I'm talking about, the art yeah. form dude, who was our head of the art history program there. That's incredible. And then he... It was like on and on. And what, at one point, George sent me mail because she did this uh, project called the Cloud Seeding Circus. So it was like an art circus. And she, I was like intimidated. I was like, who's this lady sending me mail with like right. stickers and stuff? Like, this is fucking weird. And then yeah. later on, I'm like good friends with her and, you know, sharing studio with her and whatnot. Um, so it was like very interesting in that way of how it like collided and all these different influences that now like, you know, that was some Y2K vibes and now we're at, you know, 2018 and I'm like, oh shit, I'm still friends with these folks or these, how these things have shaped me. And sometimes I think when I was younger, I mean, it was very like, there was definitely some really strict rules about what was punk or not punk. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely like Southern. I had a very opinionated yet charming boyfriend who you know, had definitely a lot of opinions about what was punk and not punk. I mean, it's, this is like a dumb thing that I mention all the time, but when I was like 16 or 17 or so, I 
was like very vocal about the fact that I thought the Stooges were too psychedelic. Oh, that's funny. You know, and it yeah. was like, I want, I only wanted things that sounded like Blank 77 or whatever. I was like very, di- or like uh, power violence that was so abysmally noisy that it was basically free jazz. Yeah. But like nothing, nothing else. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember like, at Wayward Council, you know, all the a lot of the folks, original folks who had kind of started up, like Mike Taylor is one of these people who would write notes about on each record about what it sounded like mm-hmm. and try to convince me to buy a Longfish record. And I was like, this is fucking worst shit in the world. You know, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Um, and he's like, you just don't get it. And I was like, yeah, I don't fucking get it. You Maybe know, I like, I don't will. want to, you know. And then later on, I'm like, oh, I see more of where this is coming from. I mean, also, like, I don't know if, you know, even in the house I lived in, like, listening to Sonic Youth, which I had always liked as a teenager, and, you know, it's like, uh, what is the one that's, like, their earliest one that's super experimental and just, like, more noisy. I have Um, no idea. Well, uh... I'm not that well-versed in their catalog. Yeah. It's the earlier stuff where it's definitely more raw before, you know, later on becomes very polished, but... Um, even that would be like that's not punk enough don't play that you know right we lived I had a roommate who was like you know making a lot of emo zines and she listened to Jawbreaker I was like what the fuck is this shit you know and I was like oh these are like folks who are like writing zines about photocopying their heart and stuff you know like I hated Jawbreaker yeah. so much when I was I was just like this is for fucking whiners I mean that's like kind of the headspace yeah that we're in and I it's funny I because I'll in uh you know throughout the years I'd run into folks and they'd be like man yeah you're like really crazy punk and I'm like I don't really think I was even that punk you right. know because I was told and you know unfortunately by even some folks in Chattanooga that I wasn't punk enough I'm right. like okay I'm like I don't you know and it's it's interesting because everybody that's one of the hugest downfalls I have with punk is that this concept of what is you know it's very restrictive yeah and that's I think I've always gravitated more towards like the arty kind of Minneapolis New Orleans weirdo freaker folks because there wasn't the constraints of this like clothing this uh you know yeah for sure and they were just actually like fucking freaks and i'm like yeah that's i like that (laughs) yeah and it's there's a certain there's like a sound i feel like that 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 is in that kind of vortex of minneapolis to new orleans where they're the like there is like um unifying aesthetic principles even if the bands don't all sound the same but where it like definitely there's like really interesting tempo changes in the percussion and yeah like, you're like oh yeah. yeah they've listened to like ethiopian music before or something you know like just like signatures understanding yeah. you know and a lot of those folks end up playing in like balkan brass bands or you know just kind of like a being more open to the world and also not having to like wear punk clothes that have patches or you know this or that like I have my denim vest that has patches on it and, you know, just, like, it's so restrictive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I have a lot of feelings about that. 
But then also I kind of don't because people have to go through, you know, whatever they need to. Yeah, it's important to, like, I think developmentally, and I'm not, I don't know any science about development. I'm just <laughs> yeah. com- being completely, like, based on my anecdotal experience and what I've witnessed in my friends to, like, I think, you know, I, I rejected so much, like, a uh, kind of societal strictures or whatever. I was just, like, so deeply appalled by America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on like a gut level at a very young age before I had a good political critique or anything I was just like this is fucked everything around me is fucked I kind of identified punk as like a way that I could legitimize that but then I was like this is a rejection of everything and I would be like I don't care how what people think about me you know my mom would be like then why do you spend 40 minutes gluing your hair up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You yeah. do care what people think about you. You want them to think a negative thing. Right. And that's fine. But, like, let's be more mindful of the language we use, Colin. And, like, I think getting into a really, like, replacing one rigid thing with another rigid right. thing yeah. is, like, a step towards just breaking all those rigid things open. Yeah, I mean, and also there's a lot of, like, the energy of the anti- Mm-hmm. It's feeding into the status quo. You're reinforcing the status quo if you're so into the anti. But what right. if you just create a different reality? And that's what made me gravitate towards moving to San Francisco. Sure. Because, A, like, having always, like, known, you know, like, when I was younger, you know, I was used the term bisexual, you know, now it's queer. But being like, yeah, I'm definitely this, like, very straight world of... Gainesville, even though I did know queers there, but, like, it was very straight and very, like, and I started, you know, getting in fights with a lot of, like, my, like, cis male uh, cohorts of Uh the scene, you know, where they were, like, tagging me as, like, some feminazi, and I'm like, you're just being fucked up, though. Like, there was no accountability and no whatever I left feeling very frustrated and I'm like I'm going to the fucking gay mecca yeah and also there's freaks there and it's like everybody was doing really creative like artwork and you know I had met known Ivy for example I was just gonna ask yeah, yeah. I met her on the metro rail as a 16 year old she got on well we both I can't remember who was on the train first but these teenagers yeah. got on and tried to hold they said they were holding our car hostage and then Ivy and I looked at each other from across the way and then she ended up sitting next to each other being like, uh, what is happening? And that's how we became friends. No and then she would start calling my mom's house trying to see if I could drive Los Canadians to go record in Venice, Florida. Yeah, of course. And, you know, my mom's like, who is this woman, Ivy, who keeps on calling for you? Yeah. Which is hilarious because I was like, she's blowing up, blowing up my spot at home because, like, everybody knew not to, like, call because my mom was like, not strict, but I just was trying to, like, really keep any infer- intel away from her. Yeah. Because, you know, I was, like, doing acid and having sex by, the, you know, at a very young age. And I was trying to not get busted for anything ever. Yeah, you need a to secret keep, life. Yeah, totally. You know, sneaking out the window, doing all the stuff, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The, the way I was able to maintain being very bad when I was young was that I, did, I got really good grades and I didn't really skip school that Exactly. Much. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I did. I was good in school. And then I did drugs. Yeah. And did whatever else. Yeah. You just never get caught. You just don't get caught. Don't get caught. So, yeah. So I met Ivy then. And so our, you know, 
in that time that I lived in Gainesville, we reconnected and became better friends. And when it was determined that I was going to move to San Francisco, we ended up getting the house together. Oh, she wasn't already out there? You guys moved out there together? No, she was already there, but uh-huh. we got that house together that she's still in. That's a great house. Yeah, except the landlords are terrible. Um, sure. But, yeah. So then I was out there. And it was great to kind of like shed the Gainesville mm-hmm. because I fa- at that point I was like, I'm fucking done with this. It felt super restrictive and I was like, I'm ready to get out of here. Yeah. Um, and I was only in the Bay for two years and I got really ill. I got MRSA staff twice. Yeah. I was hospitalized for that four days each time on an IV. Um, that's when the wingnut health world kicks in. I was just about in. to ask, yeah, is that when you get into like... Oh, yeah. Well, my, oh, yeah. Well, my super good friend, Caleb, who I'd known since Gainesville, he turned me on. He traded... He knew some like old, like older lesbian doctor uh, who he would like trade massage work for you know like visits to see her or like he did some kind of trade with her so I could go see her because I didn't really have insurance this is pre healthy SF and all this stuff Um, and she was like the first person I ever even heard to talk about like candida and like a diet you know because I was healthy in a lot of ways but not like that and I knew about tinctures from Gainesville you know like all this stuff but it was like kind of like oh you put like the tincture in your you know sparks or something as you're smoking and you're drinking sparks out of a champagne glass and smoking in your bedroom you know like yeah (laughs) you know what I mean it wasn't like it's like one foot in and then kind of not you know or you're like oh yeah I had this keep on getting UTIs but like Actually, if I take goldenrod, like, it went away. Right. And you're like, whoa, so weird, you know? But, like, you're connected, not connected. Yeah. So when I got really ill and, you know, the doctors are like, and that's when MRSA was, like, exploding all over the world and people are dying in droves. And they're like, they're like, yeah, there's nothing you can do. Because I asked, like, how do I prevent, like, not just having to come to the hospital and be on an IV bag, you know, for four days? They're like, oh, you know, there's, like, some nasal spray or, like, I don't know, you just have to come back. And I was like, yeah, like, this isn't going to work. And I saw her, and she was like, no, here's these mushroom pills, you know, like, to get into, which I still take. Yeah. You know, some fucking Paul Stamets-style rocking, like, fungi perfecti-style stuff. Do you know that company? Yeah, what's the, um, there's the two mushrooms, like, anti-bacterial uh, like the very common it's two kind of mushroom powders that you take that are I mean so many together. of them yeah, are yes, yeah yes. they're I mean all, pretty much all mushrooms are like that yeah but you know she turned me on to that and fermenting foods which then turned me on to Sandor Katz who I became friends with oh, yeah sent him art in the mail being like I'm too poor to buy your book and just like cold call like sent this package and then he sent me back a book and then we became good friends, and Caleb became his assistant. And you know, if I went to Tennessee, I would go hang out with him. Yeah. He like we've ended up he lives collaborating. He lives in one of those communes out there. Or he lives no, just he like used in the to mountains. live. He used to live at Short Mountain for a long right. time, and then now he, for 
quite some time now has had his own home and then a fermentation like basically like a uh, hub like a separate space that's yeah. not his house um doesn't not to get too like we're here and we're here yeah and we're here, yeah, yeah. But doesn't um meryl mushroom live out there too yeah she and uh she's one of the reasons why so many queers are out there she and gabby no shit her husband but like platonic husband yeah 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 um were some of the first queers to end up in that area in the 70s on a school bus cool we'll get back to yeah, that yeah yeah yeah, get yeah. To Corn, yeah. I, wanna, I do want to talk about that yeah stuff. yeah so it's because of becoming oh and while i had the MRSA staff i also had the common san francisco problem of major carpal tunnel problems because it seems like everybody gets problems with carpal tunnel I think it's the cold dampness. I don't know. But I yeah. was working shitty jobs that were problematic for my arms. And for like six months, I couldn't feel below my elbows and like couldn't open doors or chop food. My dog was hit by a car. There was like, you know, shows around the U.S. for tapioca, which is super sweet. Like yeah. all these groups of people that knew her like kicked down for it. She ended up being an amputee dog. Yeah. Um, it was like a really rough time and I was like had been like if it doesn't work out here I'm gonna end up, you know, in Minneapolis or New Orleans and then it was like Katrina happened and you know, it's fucking mold zone, disaster yeah. zone and I'm like, cool, I just was living in a black mold apartment, like can't go there. Right. You know, and oh and everybody had MRSA staff and that's when the punk medical myths kind of comic <laughs> and, and investigation yeah. started because, you know, people were like, Put a potato like Put shred up potato and put it on your face, you know. And like, yeah, yeah there is something we say about potato poultices, but it's not just like put it's a fucking baked potato on yeah. your face, you know. Like you're not going to Arby's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Potato yeah. cake, yeah, and smacking it on your face. Yeah. So I went to Minneapolis. I lived at the Snob House. Yeah. Um. It was like a whole different world. For me, I didn't live there for that long. It was a little bit too cold for me. Um, though I, I do really like Minneapolis at the time. I kind of didn't, but it was just like, I think my headspace. Yeah. Like, I just needed to get out of San Francisco. Ended up in Providence. Right. That's Because I did met. a residency there, and I was like, this is cool. Everybody makes art. And I'm like, oh, everybody comes from wealthy families <laughs> and went to RISD yeah. or Brown, and we're kind of groomed for this. Did you do any school besides... Your undergrad? No. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I ended up here, which is like a whole other story. Yeah. But yeah, basically kind of moved here with the band already. That was like, I don't know how, but I'm not going to get into the details of that. Yeah, but that what later became uh, the band with Blake and Kevin. Right. Um, and... Then I've been here ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because when I, when I knew you, like when I met you or like heard of you or whatever, I knew of you as Caroline from Bitchin. You know mm -hmm. how you always know like if someone has a right. defining creative project or whatever? Right. That was the one. Yeah. And I had never heard Bitchin. Like I had no idea. But yeah. I heard the name Bitchin as like a band that I should know or care about so much before I ever met you. Um, I don't think I ever listened to Bitch until we were already friends. Um, but then I found out about your like pretty prolific zine mm -hmm. stuff and like all the comic stuff that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And then you came here and we obviously started just hanging out all the time. Right. It's fucking tight. Yeah, super um, tight, super tight. Yeah, and you've always been a band person, but you've also always been some, you've, I thought of you as like a band person more before I knew you, and then I thought of you as like a publisher. Uh-huh. Like someone that makes, that writes, that draws, that makes stuff. Yeah. When did you first fuck with a Rizo? A Rizo. Rizo. I used to call it Rizo until... That's why, uh, I, why yeah. I call it that. <laughs> yeah, but trust, uh, at this point, everybody's like, Rizo, Rizo, Rizo. Um, I fucked with the Rizo in Providence because Mikey Stoltz was like, you have to try this machine yeah. Xander has. She went to the Netherlands. She did this residency. These people have this crazy machine. And I was like, I don't know. I think she has more money than me. It's probably something I can't afford, you know, whatever. He's like, no, you really need to try, which like, thank you, Mikey, for pushing that on me. Because I went over, I was doing um, an art show in Bloomington, actually, at Ryan's old gallery space. And with Casey, my friend who I had hopped trains with, Mm -hmm. and I printed up the show posters on the machine, like a three color poster in like rapid time you know like 20 minutes I was like what the fuck is this screen printing that would have been a nightmare yeah and um, I basically became obsessed I was like you know I've said this so many times before but like probably what like a middle aged man who's having like a crisis who's like I need that red sports car like Mm -hmm. I was dreaming about this machine I was like oh my god this solves all these problems because I had kind of quit doing zines because the scamming process became really hard to get copies. Yeah, it's and arduous. Like, yeah, and the person that I, another person I ended up dating for a long time who is a well-known for making many copies of publications uh-huh. uh, for free, um, they would like photocopy our publications we'd done together. Because right. I, I was like, I can't deal with this. I've never been one for really scamming, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so the Riso seemed like this way to m- get back into like producing multiples, right. doing it on my terms. Also, like the technology of the Riso with different colors and et cetera. It like just totally fit because it's like, yeah, I like I, and funny because now I want to learn offset and get out of Riso. But um you know, I thought Offset had to be like a big crazy machine the size of a room or something, right. you know, whatever, but you can get like a tabletop one. But um, yeah, so I waited to get one until I moved to New York because the dealer, one of the dealers was out on Long Island. Was that the guy that gave us that turkey? No, that was a different guy. That was like this third machine I had. Yeah, you've been Second. through a bunch of machines. Yeah, but I still, the first one is the one that I've still printed on. Really? Yeah. Oh, no shit. Cool. The other ones were like weird Bobo ones. And so before you had the Riso, did you ever think about the idea of like spending time helping other people put their stuff out? Um, Well, not necessarily because I didn't even have the means to put out my own work. Right. I mean, I'd always contribute to other people's projects or draw ads for MRR or comics or this or that. Like, or people, oh, there's this protest. Can you paint this banner or et cetera? Um, But so I got that one Riso. We couldn't get it up to my bedroom. So it lived in the kitchen at Eleanor's 
that first house oh, yeah, fuck, on I Spencer forgot Street. That the Rizzo was in that house. Yeah, and then I had two, which I think that's the second one when we got the turkey. Yeah, when the dude gave us the turkey, which is a whole other story. It's it's a very short story. Yeah, we went. We drove a van to Long Island to buy a Rizzo. No, off Westchester. Of, that was Westchester. No, yeah. that was out to Long Island. No. Okay, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it was like Westchester zone, because you're pointing out we went to like some delicatessen or donut shop that you knew that like your family would go to or something i think it we went to the delicatessen in rosedale yeah it was like in that zone to, but that's on the way to long island it's where anyway, my grandparents live. yeah it doesn't matter yeah, yeah. but it, the guy it was from like the a company that made they did f- school photography school photography right and they printed out the permission slips or whatever yeah on this reso and they were getting rid of it yeah and we went and bought it and it was like early November and while we were walking out it was there was it was already a frost yeah there was like a pile of frozen turkeys sitting outside well we remember we were sitting there and he's like you guys like meat and I thought oh god this guy's like a hunter or something he wants yeah. to like share you know the meat and then it turns out that they gave out turkeys to every one of their employees and he had an extra one yeah so he gave us a turkey yeah yeah yeah, that was a good. That was fun. Was then we nice ate day. that turkey for my birthday in April, <laughs> <laughs> and like Mikey and Alicia, like super bouged it up, and it yeah. was a really good turkey on the grill. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. But yeah, but yeah. So pegacorn is like to me this really interesting thing because we're in this moment where like you and I come from as like a punk oriented zine culture of the '90s, but I mm-hmm. feel like there's like a majority of zine culture that exists today is a lot more profesh maybe than we ever mm. were or like at least has that it's exterior. different it's different context yeah yeah like it feels like it's not coming from the same well place. everybody's really into branding these days yeah and there's like this it's just a lot more they're a lot less here's what i'll say to be maybe accurate and diplomatic they're a lot less squeamish about commerce Yes. Um, maybe than we were. Yes. Well, look at the state of this post-capitalistic uh, environment we live in. Yeah. You know? It's like, remember, I was at New York Art Book Fair. You wanted a certain publication. I, Edie was tabling with me. I said, hey, can you watch the table for a second? I, I'm going to go to the bathroom and pick up this this book that Colin wants. And I was, like, grabbing some change, and I just grabbed a 20, and Edie's like, no, because you wanted two copies of this thing. I wanted both. Yeah, there was two issues. It was yeah. Like a cookbook or something, right? Yeah, we won't get into what it was and who put it out. And I don't Edie, even remember. Uh, I'll tell, tell you later. later but yeah. uh, Edie's like, you might need to bring $40. And I'm like, are you fucking serious? And they turned out to be sold out of one of them, so I just yeah. got to the other one. And it was a zine that was $20. It's just photocopied. And yeah. I was kind of appalled. I was like, and I know, you know, who puts out. So it's like, this is more New York style, you know, like zine culture. Like, why is this $20? What I'm doing is handmade. And yeah, like even Faith, you know, recently called me out who I, you know, was my best friend and we did project together. And she's like, it's not like minor thread days anymore. And I'm like, I know. Mm-hmm. I get that, but I own all my own equipment. The price point, like if we're just looking at certain things, this is why I can price things this low. And I'm trying to get it out to more people yeah, and have that kind of like ripple effect rather than, I don't know, like I feel weird charging more. 
and there's a lot of work inner work maybe I have to do surrounding that some kind of like leftover punk damage some type of scrappy dog syndrome I don't know like I definitely know who I am and what I do and it's I feel very solid about that but in the state of this really like extremely gross and insidious like post-capitalistic culture and branding etc I feel really hesitant to like like it feels it feels very gross and icky to me even though I am printing every fucking single thing touching every single sheet of paper multiple times Mm -hmm. doing this all by hand I still feel yeah maybe I should charge a couple more dollars but like I can't it's not realistic even based on like federal minimum wage is still 775 some places it's 15 Mm -hmm. not very many places and you know besides the new york bubble can people afford things yeah and it's also like paper it's not like if it was letterpress or something like that like yes these things become more right money for photocopies reso the whole point of reso is to have cheap prints like that's how the company sells the machine right is the price point is like copies are like a cent a piece you know what i'm saying so and I'm not even trying to do like fake, fake like CMYK color processing with it. Also, because my machines suck. But no, but I mean, I think your style, as like influenced by the uh, boundaries of what your machines are capable of, turns out like you consistently put out such cool looking work. But I think, I, I mean, I think like if we want to find a healthy answer, it's probably we split the difference somewhere. Yeah. Right. And like. The people selling twenty dollars a stack of photocopies are wrong. Not that we need a framework of right and wrong, right? But like, and you probably could value your labor a little higher, even yeah. If your totally. materials are lower, totally. But like, I think there's like a really, I think there's a really pernicious, like kind of like, well, my labor is worth this, and if I don't get this for my hard work, then blah blah blah. Yeah. It's like. Also, I've been making zines since 1996, and there's, like, a lot of people coming and going. Yeah. And I'm like, what's your long-haul game? Yeah. You know, like, why are you doing this, and what is your... If you're coming to it from a totally financial background or financial standpoint, it's going to be... There's, like, so much pressure. There's not a lot of, like, freedom within that. Right. There's not a lot of information exchange, and it's just not the point you know like and for me it's like publishing has always been an extension of my personal art practice which is different right and I've never tried to it's interesting that people think that I am only making my art because also I don't put on Instagram that I'm like an art handler right you know because who wants to see me doing labor or why do I want to post about work it's yeah, not I mean, what I want to highlight but it's interesting because yeah well it's all very interesting how all this internet stuff connects and the branding and this and the way it's all kind of come together and book fair stuff and what people think and I'm like I live in New York like sometimes I've been criticized a little bit I worked on a project with someone and they felt like we couldn't charge five dollars for a book that was like uh, I don't know, 52 pages long or something like that because they're like, people don't want to pay, are going to think that's weird. And I'm like, 
They thought that was too low? I, I, they thought it was too much. And I'm like, that is weird because also, like, I live in New York and I live try to live very cheaply here, but studio is not free. Machine isn't free. Supplies aren't free. Right. We're touching everything. At this point, like, if people are buying a $4 coffee, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, the Norio Hardcore Matinee went up to $7 in, like, 2008. If, like, yeah. if they could make wrap their heads around <laughs> that. Yeah, I just, I was really surprised, but then, you know, I was like, no, actually, there is a cost to my labor. And even if yeah. I'm making, like, a dollar an hour, like, I'd, I would like to at least make a dollar an hour. Um, yeah, but that's, and I think, also, like a healthy... also, sometimes, uh, there's something within having an exchange of, like, being like, yes, I do value your labor. Here's $5, mm-hmm. you know? For it was sure. very interesting. And then people were like, you know, you're not charging enough. Right. Like, I had, I was up in Maine a couple weeks ago for a book fair, and someone I know from New York was like, you know, I had a $3 zine. It's like a four, four five-sheet thing. It's very easy for me to print off. I made it in 2011, et cetera. And they're like, that's too cheap. And I'm like... This is like to me one of like uh, this is the t- the zine that really resonates with teenage feminists. Yeah, and I want them to have it, and I really don't care what you think. Like it's three dollars. Yeah, it's fucking three dollars. I don't feel weird charging five dollars for it. I don't care if it takes X amount of time. I hear from like LGBTQI like uh, facilitators that they use it in their groups that they meet up with and it really like resonates with teens and I'm like because it's three dollars and teens have three (laughs) dollars you know what I mean I see I see your zines not just stuff that Pegacorn has printed but I see your zine like your own work in particular in like the zine library of every like collective queer house or punk house or whatever that I've been to for a year and like now that I'm like less in a um, zone where those are like the places where I do most of my socializing but yeah. I still, you know I was staying just now until this morning I was staying on this trip at a house where uh, I have like I have friendships that are older than any of the people that live in the house you know what yeah. I mean and it's like and I was looking through the zine library last night actually because they were all at a show that started at 2am and I was like I'm going to take a shower enjoy yeah. having this apartment to myself and fall asleep before they all come in at five, all coked up or whatever, right. and like wake me up. And uh, and I was looking through the zine library, like trying to see like how out of touch am I with like a twenty-two year old's zine right. library? Yeah, you know, I kind of wanted to write them a note to be like, you should get rid of this copy of Evasion. Oh God, yeah. Um, but other than that, I was like, oh yeah, this, this, this. I get it, I get it, I get it. And then uniformly in circumstances like that I'm like there's like a copy of Womanimalistic or there's a copy of like uh, less so the I used to see the zine libs a lot and that's I see that less so these days but like your personal work that's like kind of like I'm a I'm a wild feral earth goddess (laughs) you know what I mean like tapping into my shit yeah Uh, and it's there in all these places because it keeps a, because it's accessible, because they can afford it's it. It's really about, well, and also just, like, in general, accessible. It's, like, trying to be really open and create a space uh, for uh, personal freedom, I think, for folks. And I think the price point 
is part of that that avenue into accessibility you know where it's not like coming off with pretentious airs of like right. oh you know la, 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 you know this this amount of money and it's like i'd prefer that like yeah i'm a fucking broke ass you know that we're good friends yeah one of my largest like sources of like stress is money um i don't think that like charging even two dollars more for what i do like per book is going to uh, change my financial landscape. Right. You know, I'm like most people, I don't have any airs about the fact that I have to work a job. You know, like I'm a art working artist. I make work. I have to work a job. It'd be great if someone's like, you're so awesome. Here's thousands of dollars a month to be you. Fuck yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. Sure. Like almost everybody else in the world, I gotta work. Also like most artists, Right? Yeah, like totally. A lot of them, this maybe people work a job that's like in the f- similar field. Right. To, but like I listened to Nicole J. George's podcast yeah. that you were on, yeah. um, Sagittarius Matters All the Time, and there's always, you know, there's like an advice yeah. segment to it, and a lot of it is like, what do you, adv- what's your biggest advice for how to have an adult artistic practice? And her beginning advice is always get a job. Don't try to rely. Well, yeah. I mean, I felt that way even. You know, in the last band I was in, like, you know, it was doing pretty well. And, like, there was, like, some stress of, like, you know, basically Kevin was like, oh, I should quit my job and we can just tour all the time. And Blake and I were like, no, don't do that. Yeah. I mean, every working life or artist knows that, like, once you try to just cash in all the chips that way, like, you're, it's, like, leads basically to and more than likely the unhappy path. Mm-hmm. I've been like, oh, God, I just have to tour all the time. Like, I like touring when I want to tour and when I want to leave and meet people. If I had to tour all the time, yeah, it would suck. It's tiring. You know, I like yeah, to have exhausting. a balance of, like, having a home life and friends in town or a romantic life. I mean, you know, last person I dated was for six years, and they were very gracious about me touring, and we'd stay in touch a lot, and it was very supportive, but it's like, it is hard when you're like leaving a lot or you're yeah. practicing we practice twice a week every week you know that's a lot of fucking practicing it's a lot of time yeah totally in a city where there's not a lot of time yeah know? but you know we were playing a lot and you know yeah and it seemed like well if you wanted to it could be this bigger thing mm-hmm. but also there's something about like pushing that that puts a strain on it in every way that's not like sustainable yeah, that makes sense. Unless you're like, you know, fucking 19, you're like, oh my God, I'm just want to tour all the time. Right. But like but as adults, like, yeah. I mean, you know, Blake and I were older than Kevin and kind of maybe had more experience than that. It just to know like, no, it's no. Yeah, no, it's for not, sure. Don't want to do that. But yeah, so it's, it's good to have the balance. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you... Get the Rizo. You st- you started making just your own work on the just Rizo, my own right? work, and then I was on a five week European tour with the last band, and I remember I feel like we were in Slovenia, and I was in this printer, looking out the window. I was like, I think I was in the front seat, and I was like. I think I'm going to start this publishing thing. And like a bee came in the window and died right on my notebook. 
<laughs> which I also thought it was kind of like an omen too because I, by then I was already a beekeeper. Yeah. Oh no shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, oh yeah. Like it's weird, but to me it made sense at the time. I was like, oh yeah, it's all coming together. I kind of knew my time with that band was up because it wasn't, uh, as you know, because you went on tour with us quite a bit. Um, yeah. It wasn't a sustainable thing for me. Yeah. being the gatekeeper to feminism for a certain population that was into yeah. my previous bandmates endeavors um <laughs> <laughs> it's not at this point Listen, it shouldn't have been yeah. surprised that Let's there's a woman playing in a band and yeah, then knew how to play bass that's yeah let's get past that yeah no i know um but, uh, yeah, so I quit that band at the airport on the way back. From that same tour? Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't going to work anymore. Yeah. And uh, I feel like, uh, you know, I remember my dad, before he died, he said, like, quitting the band is the best thing you could have done for yourself. He's like, this just that band was not going to work. And I was, like, very wise of him the way you said it and I was like it's true like it was not like my path wasn't to do that like I yeah. still want to play music and I love playing music but in general like that making the decision to stop that and then get back into my own world of you know art practice yeah. and publishing that's when I officially began uh, started Pegacorn Press cool it was after that tour yeah and it's like a gilded cage too because it's like this project that has a kind of momentum that could have you guys could have continued to build on potentially right know, that, like it could have become like a real defining creative moment in your life uh, potentially but I mean whatever I don't care I'll actually just say like the band was with Blake Schwarzenbach as you know and it's never like yeah I don't think there's another Blake in punk like, well I, I don't know times. maybe there is and we just <laughs> don't know them but we yeah. haven't stated who it was but uh there uh and you know it's complicated, but I, I love both of my ex-bandmates, even though I'm not in communication with them. But I think sometimes, like, it's hard to have a creative project with someone who already has such a kind of... Uh, there's such emotional attachment to his previous bands yeah. that anything else that he might try to do with other people that have nothing to do with that is still shaded by that. And there's right. still... It's either a blessing or a burden, you know of the folks who might be there's a lot of emotional response to his previous bands yeah and i mean i've encountered that even in my own world of publishing i've had people come up you know because I, I speak at different like reso international conferences and they're like kind of uh blake fans and they bring a lot of baggage with them it yeah. has nothing to do with me, but it gets projected onto me. Yeah, I called them Schwartzen boys when I would <laughs> yeah. tour with you guys because it was like these men. These I mean, like it a, is all men. There's no. Y yeah, no. It's, yeah. I mean, there's women that have like, uh, like different kind of yeah. unhealthy relationship. That's all projection with Blake that are of a similar age. Yeah. Um, but they're the way they. It's it seems like much more of a personal like poster on the wall kind of team beat thing and less yeah. of a. With the men, they would come up to the merch table and they would like, and I think the only reason 
that it was sustainable for me to like drive around with you guys for weeks at a time was because I never was a fan of Jawbreaker and I didn't right like, same here I mean yeah. he and I became friends really close and it had I was like yeah I didn't even I listened to Jets of Brazil because which and when I was younger and I was ultra southern punk I was like this is the most emo ass shit ever I would never yeah. I would be like fuck that and um so my friendship with him began having nothing to do with that and I think that's also why we got along and half of it I mean I just really didn't know about the noise and you know I'm just saying who it is whatever it could be anybody of that coming from that background so not to just say specifically with him this kind of baggage of like you know the teen poster vibes or the crushed out I mean I think like for the time of maybe Jawbreaker and Jets of Brazil like He's was speaking very openly, singing, you know, about feelings, which a lot of maybe these more straight cis males have uh, maybe communication issues. So it was like, oh, my God, you know, there's a lot of like, you've saved my life, et cetera. And I've heard this from other friends who've been in bands with similar kind of like, uh, you know, punk culty kind of figures. And it's similar kind of like people bring I mean, people bring a lot of baggage yeah, you know, and so it's. I don't want to just say it's like just with him. I think in general, there's like that fan phenomena. Of course, and it's yeah. it. I like attention when I want attention. Yeah, you know. I, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I also. I'm like I look back on the time traveling with you guys so fondly because I feel like there was a thing, there was like this thing that I this really pernicious thing that I started internalizing in like in high school and like kind of continued to do. That was about like dumbness being punk, mm-hmm. and I feel like you know I never got into the more like heady intellectual like we reference poets and philosophers and <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. bands or whatever because I, I was like no no this is like about dumbness this is like there's a straight line from the Ramones to the Blank Seventy Seven to whatever and even when I was into more intelligent music it was not about it was just different and. And there was like, there's been like a kind of a book smart element to my personality since I was little. Oh yeah, totally. And I think spending like hours in a van with Blake was, I think I was able to really give up the last of my like feeling any shame about being intellectual or intelligent. Like he really, I felt like I had to be more articulate, not because he would judge me if I wasn't, but because he was so precise with his language. Like I feel like it just was like, it made me in many ways it made me a better smarter person to spend time like hanging out with you guys and hanging out with him specifically which is not something when i was 15 and was like jawbreaker is for long island emos i don't oh my god yeah i mean i never would have thought like i would have a transformative relationship with this person i mean this like my life is ridiculous in this way i mean where are we doing this interview right now at sea squad exactly yeah so it's like there's always these like weird you know you're like okay like you know everything from uh, you know i'm like oh yeah we'd go hot water music thing you know it's like i don't i was never a hot water music fan all those guys are nice sure Sure. you know to that to be like oh yeah like a jawbreaker sucks oh okay i'm in a band with uh blake yeah you know oh okay gonna be on this you know we're filming this tv show with my good friend natasha leone and yeah. i'm living at sea squat you know you're yeah. like you live at the house that like, victim built dude i know but it's like you know zine libs it goes back to a zine lib yeah sometimes my life is a big zine lib yeah for sure um 
but I think it's part of like uh, it goes back into that having that openness and not being like uh, restricted by ideas yeah. of what things how things could be yeah for sure you know like the being expansive and being like yeah I'm fucking just trying to be open to things as they come up whether it's being like into the woo woo and like uh, you know communicating with plants and uh, fairy entities or whatever to right, yeah. uh, you know publishing and having a kind of bread and puppet kind of like lifer you know accessibility yeah thing to I'm a wing nut I'm gonna bring this to wing the nut yeah, yeah to like I don't know you know me yeah it gets we can go in a lot of different directions yeah there's so I mean I think what I'm realizing in this conversation is that there's like we need to do a series of interviews to deal with all the <laughs> stuff that I want to talk about but the last thing I just want to touch on because I think it's like a little yeah. over an hour and I think yeah. we're getting to the point where it's just uh, absurd to ask someone to keep listening to us talk oh yeah totally for much longer but um, you can just speed it up so we can talk like Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll speed up by just like point oh five, like, just yeah, a little just bit. To, yeah, tiny. Um, not, that's not, kind of a lot. That's how I. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm blow. I think not enough people listen to the podcast for me to blow up my own spot about this. But when I upload mixtapes to SoundCloud and it says they won't, um, they can't. There's copyrighted material on them, and I can't upload. Oh them. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you speed it up by point one percent, it's yeah. almost unrecognizable that it's different. Uh-huh. Except for like to some record store dork, right? And but it tricks the algorithm. Cool. So yeah, I mean that's uh, for all my video work. That's yeah, you why do. I yeah, do it yeah, so yeah, I can sure. fit within that minute like fucking Instagram limit. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Fuck. Oh my goddess! Um, what the fuck are we gonna the, do? Uh, We're so, never gonna talk again. Yeah, no. Um, actually, yeah, I guess we'll just leave it. Pegacorn is sick. I wanted to talk about some of the stuff Super that you published. Sick. Like, yeah. Uh, like, specifically, I guess I'm interested in how you got to publish Bardikes. Oh, yeah. Because that's like, I think there's a way that I was kind of fanish and, like, academically interested in, like, legacies of. Uh, punk creative culture mm-hmm. uh, in America when I was like in my uh, teens and 20s I'm now interested in a similar way in like legacies of queer creative culture in uh-huh. America and I wonder like how did you meet Meryl you know like, I met Meryl through bestie Caleb because no Caleb has known Meryl through his two moms and his whole part of this southern yeah. uh, like dyke community Okay. And so when Caleb, you know, was living in Tennessee the first time, when I would go down and stay with him for vacation, we would go to Merrill's and like hang out at her, her, you know, hand built house that she and yeah. Gabby built. Super awesome. And that's how I met her. And, you know, it was just like this lady's fucking wizardress, like straight up. She's yeah, so she badass. So then uh, Faith, my other best friend, ended up living down there for a bit. And she and Meryl became super good friends. And uh, Meryl's awesome house, unfortunately, burned down. And she's a prolific writer. And her friends were sending copies of things she had written back to her because she lost everything. And so they were having a conversation. Somehow it came up and Meryl was like, hey, I have this. Someone sent this back. I totally forgot about this. And Faith's like, are you fucking serious? 
So, because Bardex is incredible. Yeah, it's like such an incredible document. And it's, yeah, and also I have to say, the same time that was released, I released Dean Samshima's Encounters, which oh, is shit. all yeah. And it, I was trying to do Edie Fake's book at the same time, but it didn't all line up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping to do a trifecta that year of like the most badass. Like we have like. 1950s Bardic culture, 1990s tea room culture, cruising culture in LA, yeah. and then current queer awesomeness. Yeah. You know, and it's also sure. like, you know, very old school dyke, old school gay dude, and then like fucking wide open, awesome. Yeah, what is? gender like non-binary trans explosion you know just like the expansiveness. Yeah, for and sure. And like how did we get here today? It was through these people. I mean, that was, like, my fantasy of being, like, this fucking trifecta. But that's not how the timing worked out, and it's totally fine. Yes, they love you. But so the same time that Meryl's book um, came out, it was with Dean's book. Yeah. So I just have to say that, because... Yeah, for sure. And no, his is more up. of a visual documentation rather than, you know, the play. Because with Bardykes, it's an interview with Meryl... Or, sorry, the play, which had never been published before, but had been performed once... By her old neighbor in the Lower East Side, but he moved to Hollywood. Right. And then an interview with her now discussing her life Mm -hmm. as, you know, being a fucking wild, like, I mean, she went to University of Florida as well and had to leave because they were going after gay students. And so she transferred to the University of Miami. She's from Miami Beach. She had to transfer to University of Miami because it's a private school and they refused to persecute their gay students. No fucking way. And then she ended up in New York, in New York, in the Lower East Side, running a head shop. Yeah, you know sure. they had a free store, like this whole deal. She got uh, married to Gabby, this gay man, so they could avoid persecution. Right. And so they bought the school bus. They traveled around. They did that whole thing. Yeah. And they ended up fostering all these kids. And you know, I mean, she's so badass. It's, yeah, she's you know, incredible. So much that she wanted her phone number included in the publication, so you can call her and talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. She's the best. Yeah, she's yeah, she's amazing. So it was a very easy book to do. Yeah, and it's just super so, easy. I feel like those it's like a third edition. intergenerational yeah. connections are so between artists, between queers, like recognizing our elders in whatever community. Oh yeah. And is so Yeah, and she's I mean, she's so active. I talked to her recent I talked to her like a week ago and then she's still Super involved with Sister uh, Sinister Wisdom. She sent me both of these last week. Land Dykes of the South, Hotspots Creating Lesbian Space in the South. You know, like she's on it. She's, I think, 78 or 79 now. And I mean, she's like a total inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, and letting other, and that's like, yeah, okay, Bardex is $6. Okay, yeah, I suppose I've been told I could sell it for eight. Well, like, I just, yeah, I just want people to know about Meryl. I want people to be aware of, like, even though it's it's a play, it's based on how things were. Yeah. You I know, mean, like, it was not easy at all, like, being, like, e- well, A, gay, B, butch. You know, there's yep. all these clothing things, you know, that just, it's so fucked up. And yeah. then, in fact, you know, it's like, in order to avoid being put in a psychiatric unit, you know, for being gay, like you, you got to marry somebody of the opposite gender, you know, yeah. to like pass. And I mean, they're great friends. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah but you yeah. know, but now we're like, yeah. And things are obviously terrible in our current 
state where you have like Trump being like, oh, we're going to make, make it so whatever the doctor says you are when you're born and you know just all this fucked up like rolling back of everything that's been built forward mm -hmm. you know um i just want to say so i don't know when what the status of those laws and stuff is going to be when it this interview actually gets released as yeah. a podcast but um my friend molly works at uh trans law center yeah and they will help you change your birth certificate to have your correct gender and uh, there's, there's places like that yeah 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 all over the country trans law center can work with people in michigan pennsylvania new york and a couple other states it's on their website i'll put a link in the thing yeah um but if it's they're really pushing to help people do that now because if you can get those documents changed before any of those laws right. go in effect, then it's really yeah and it's, also it's that's they might say that but there's still the state level yeah, for sure. You know, so it's, you know, he's fucking always saying shit. And you're like, no, you you can't actually do that, you right. know. But, yeah, I mean, the point of saying that without, I mean, we could go on and on about yeah. what's going on. Absolutely. Currently, the point is with Meryl and even, you know, this man came to the table when I was at New York Art Book Fair and he knows Meryl and Gabby from the late 60s. He's like, yeah, me and my boyfriend at the time went on the school bus from Toronto to Montreal and he yeah. came back the next day with all this ephemera of, you know, their lives and oh his, hey, God, there's Gabby, here's so Meryl, cool. whatever. And then when I talked to Meryl about it, she's like, did he tell you about his cum rag show? Like, he, you know, came in all these rags and ironed them out and framed them. And I was like, no, he did not tell me oh that. Oh, my God. Um, you know, but yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, things are really fucked up, but they're, it's not as fucked up as how it is. Like, we're enjoying being freaks now mm -hmm. in this way because of people like Meryl and Gabby and, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to we got to know about it. Yeah, for sure. At $6 a copy. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for Tisa Zemiro. Thank you to Tom Sharplin. Um, thank you to Nicole George's Sagittarius Matters. That shit kills me every time. Thank you to Daniel Mallory Oldberg. These are my uh, my podcast uh, heroes. Uh, except for Tom Sharplin, that's not a podcast. That's a radio experience. Also, Angie Martinez doesn't do. A, you know what I'm trying to say? Um, yeah, I'm running out of time. No cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. Uh, fuck the government, fuck the police, fuck ICE. I'm out.